So once you have a new place, are you going to get your own cat that you get to keep? I'm absolutely going to continue fostering. Okay. That I know for sure. So I'm like only looking at places that accept cats, but I, I really like fostering. Okay. And I kind of want to go even deeper. Like, do you know what TNR is? No. So TNR is how you deal with feral cat populations and it's called trap neuter release. And so cats are like an invasive species, if you think about that, that we're responsible for. Mm -hmm. But if you just like kill the cats or remove all of them, then like more cats just move in. Like they breed, they can have a litter before they're even out of kittenhood. So they breed actually like very effectively and very fast. Yeah, that so was my one cat the ways, before I got her. Exactly, right. So like the way that they manage it is that they they trap the cat, they neuter it, and then put it back if it's not domesticatable. Some oh. are, some aren't. Huh. And so I'd really like to get involved in like working with the cats that look like they might be domesticatable, but like need to settle down a little bit. Like, so see if I can work with some spicy cats. <laughs> I really enjoyed I to... my last rascal. Uh Choji, the uh-huh. hoarding, the hoarding cat. He was a he was a lot more work, but that was very very rewarding. And I'd love to get uh-huh. involved in this whole like, hey, let's not have this invasion species anymore, and so let's get these cats off the street if we can. Some that's nice yeah, birds. That's cool. episode again another episode people are going to start to expect these on the regular again well we're at every three weeks right now (laughs) see if we can keep that up thank you for editing all our podcasts yes i think we've done some really good episodes lately so we gotta we gotta keep this up Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. i agree well let's jump into another good one then because we got another good book in my opinion but welcome to the Trade Raiders. We talk about graphic novels. And today we're going to talk about The Magic Fish by uh, Chung Le Nguyen. But we start with character building questions. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. I did prepare. So the character building question for today is what is your favorite fairy tale? I will begin to give you guys a chance to think about it. Uh, I'm Jam. And I, growing up, had a book of fairy tales called The Big Blue Book of Fairies or something, which has, I don't want to say like historical fairy tales. They seemed older, but to be honest, I don't know how old or historically accurate they were. But I remember really enjoying the version of Sleeping Beauty that was in the Big Blue Fairy book because it, it was a lot more involved and had like a lot more chapters and twists than the, the, the Disney-fied version that gets repeated out. And so that is my favorite fairy tale. Hmm. You got one? I mean, does Goldilocks count? Yes. Very much so. All right. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, growing up, we had a book of fairy tales that I enjoyed the illustrations uh, a lot, but 
but just particularly as a child, I always remember just loving Goldilocks and the Three Bears because I don't know something about the the you can't can't go wrong if you got threes, right? Everything in threes, <laughs> and like just the way that you go through like the porridge that's too hot and too cold and just right, and the bed that's too hard and too soft and just right, and I don't know, just the rhythm, the rhythm of that story. But I mean, I know it's like you think about. It was that or Jack and the Beanstalk, but they're both about people that just like steal other people's stuff and get away with it. So I don't know if they're really good moral stories, but it's it's a it's class <laughs> solidarity. They're stealing from aristocrats and landowners. Right, right. Some of them are bears. Some of them are giants. Bears are indigenous. Yeah, bears. I think bears were there first. <laughs> I mean, giants, um, giants. Okay, you make a good point. Then maybe. Jack that giant Beanstalk. had servants. That was a landowner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm Jonathan, and apparently I'm outing myself as a socialist here. Uh, oh my god, I'm shocked. Don't I, I? Sure hope nobody starts following you on Twitter. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. I don't know if I can think of a fairy tale that is my favorite fairy tale. Uh, I really, really like adaptations of fairy tales where someone takes, an, a, takes a fairy tale and does something with it. Like, I love those. But I, I don't know if I can think of a, like an actual fairy tale that I would think of like, yes, that's the one I just want to read in its quote unquote original version. Uh, I do really want to do some reading sometime into uh, Puss in Boots. I think that like I would actually like to do an adaptation of my own of that story at some point. Uh, I just like the idea of this cat that decides that he's going to be like a person and be successful and like wear boots and like uh, have money and like there, there's something there. I got I, you can do something with that. So I'm gonna say Puss in Boots, even though I don't know if I've read the original original before. Well, I think that's a very strong answer. And if you like adaptations and stories that have fairy tales with a twist, I have a book to recommend to you. It's called The Magic Fish by <laughs> John Lane Nguyen. And it is the book we're going to talk about today. So I hope you've read it. Uh, but yeah, uh, so the book we're talking about today is an exploration of immigration and family and Vietnamese American identity told through the lens of three adapted fairy tales and the life of a young boy and his mom living in America in the 80s, 90s. But a little bit about the author. Chong Le Nguyen is a Vietnamese American creator. Their pronouns are he, they, so I will be using them both interchangeably. Uh, he currently lives in Minneapolis, but they're born in the Philippines. The Magic Fish is their debut OGN, and it was nominated for an Eisner, just lost to Junji Ito. So that's how good The Magic Fish is, is that it was only managed to be dethroned by Junji Ito, which we have covered before. Before that, though, yeah, he's done a ton of work with mainstream, mainstream publications, including Oni Press, Boom, Image. He's done a lot of variant covers. He's doing work with like Marvel as well, I think. Uh, some of the titles where he's done full chapter illustrations, either as just an illustrator or as an illustrator slash writer, include 
Twisted Romance, Fawns and Flora, Fresh Romance, and Adventure Time. So I'm very excited to talk about this work. What did y'all think? Um, I love this book. This was so good. This was like exactly the thing that I said that I uh, wanted a minute ago, where it's like taking fairy tales and then doing something that makes sense in the context that you're writing it, but makes so much sense in the context that you're writing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and the art was great. And like the, just everything about it, like the way the narrative structure flowed together. Uh, I've only read it the one time so far and I want to read it again. It's gorgeous. Yeah. It's a really beautiful book. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that Eisner nomination is well-earned. Um, I can think of no greater compliment to pay to a cartoonist than to lose to Jinji Ito. Um, <laughs> like I think you're in pretty good company if, if like you're, you're going toe to toe with Jinji Ito. So, I mean, uh, yeah, I think it was a really great book. It's, I, this reminded me of, uh, way back when I was reading Sandman and there was often a story within a story happening in Sandman. And I think that's something that I really liked about this work is it's a story within a story, you know, multiple times. And it's sort of kind of like there's, there's multiple stories kind of happening simultaneously and thread within each other. And it's a kind of structure that I think works best in comics, actually, like that kind of stark jump from, you know, fairy tale to this time period to flashback to another fairy tale. Uh, I think it would be a little more jarring in another medium. And I think comics is just such a perfect medium for this. Um, I really love the way the fairy tales complement the lives of the characters and you sort of have the current timeline but then you also have these kind of flashbacks with uh tian's mother and just yeah the the complexity of the story and the art the beauty of the art um it's a real uh real amazing work and i'm also i'm a big fan of uh limited color palette and so some of the best limited color palette use i've seen so yeah they are definitely very excellent limited palette. So like every section has its own palette, so to speak. So I will give a little bit of a summary of the work next uh, so we can mm. dive into the details. First, a little bit of a disclaimer. This is not a review podcast, so to speak, but I should say that I am, uh, I've recently become a Patreon supporter of Trunkle. So uh, my dollar fifty a month I very generously give to Trungles and only started after this graphic novel was published makes me directly financially responsible for this book. So you're welcome. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it does make me a little bit biased, but I, I do really, really enjoy this book and this work. So as we mentioned, there is a little bit of a story within a story going on in this book. Uh, the overarching tale uh, focuses on Tien, who is uh, a young boy, a Vietnamese immigrant living in America, and his mom, whose name is Hien or Helen. His dad's name is Vin, but isn't as prominently featured in the, in the story. But it's mostly about Tien and his mom. And a way that they work together and uh, strengthen their bond and also help to have Helen learn English a little bit better is they take out 
fairy tales from the library and read them to each other, which I think is a very sweet premise. So the, the central challenge in the life of Tien and his mom is that Tien is gay and he doesn't really know how to tell his family. He doesn't, you know, want to disappoint them or cause any conflict and stress, especially because even at this young age, Tien can tell that life is tough for his family. You know, they're immigrants who are trying to get a foothold in America. Like we don't see a lot of his dad, Vin, because I think he works really hard. And Helen is having some problems because her mom is really sick in the home country. So she's saving up to try and fly back home for the first time in a really long time to see her sick mother. In the meantime, we experience three different fairy tales. The first one being Tattercoats, where a girl is promised to the god of the sea, but manages to escape having been given three magical dresses and falls in love with a prince. Uh, the second one being Tan Cam, which is a Vietnamese version of Cinderella, where Cinderella is creates a or has a friendship with a fish and manages to use the powers of that magic fish to uh, similarly meet her prince charming and escape the clutches of her, her evil stepmother although she she dies in the end of this one i think mm -hmm. yeah the um, ending is very different from the cinderella that we know yeah and the third fairy tale is a, a version of the little mermaid and each story has its own little bit of a twist each story has its own particular aesthetic, I think, to it, which is explored a little bit in the back matter, which I highly encourage reading if you haven't. And yeah, so there's, I think, well, what do you want to talk about first? There's a lot to the story. <laughs> um, one thing that I really liked about the way that the, the fairy tales interact with the rest of the story is, first of all, it kind of seems like the three fairy tales are the same story, that they're all connected with each other but not in a very sort of linear, obvious way. Like I would have to read it again and sort of like make notes to try and figure out how they connect. But I kind of don't want to do that work because I enjoy the ambiguity of the connection being vague. It reminds me a little bit of the movie Big Fish, where it's also like fairy tales are kind of the background of the story. And like, there isn't really a logical plot because fairy tales sometimes don't have a logical plot. They're just stuff that happens and it's weird. Uh, and I like that it kind of leaves it as that, that it leaves it as a sort of like weird dreamlike quality of like, these stories are the same story, but you would have to do some work to figure out how. Mm. Uh, and so I like that. And I also like that they're kind of used to talk about the characters and their personal sort of emotional experiences which is like, I think that's kind of what fairy tales are supposed to be. They're supposed to be like, you're supposed to sort of see yourself in them and see connections and like retell them. Uh, there's a line, I'm probably not gonna be able to find it right now where the characters talk about what fairy tales are and how the, the retelling of it is part of the process. Hmm. Yeah, there's a really interesting character moment so uh, sadly, spoilers for this entire book, by the way, sadly, uh, Helen 
or Hien's mom does end up dying. And so she has to go back to the Philippines, or sorry, to Vietnam in a very different circumstance from what she was originally trying to do. Uh, but she reconnects with her aunt, Velvet, who reminds her uh, the ending to the Cinderella version of the story, which was different from what uh, Hien had been able to remember. But having been through so many different life experiences and all of these changes, I think the, the implication is that she comes to it with a new perspective. And yeah, like telling the story over and over again through the ages, through the generations uh, is really important to culture. And I think that cultural aspect was very important to this book as well, because there was an aspect of like, these are the Vietnamese myths. These are the Vietnamese spins on these myths, but also this kind of aspect of like coming to America, right? And trying to understand America through the myths that are common here, which was as an immigrant story, really, really compelling. Uh, really, I, I really want to read more work like this. I thought it was really strong really interesting and i i loved it yeah yeah like i think that's the the power of fairy tales where you can take the little mermaid and decide this is a story about immigration and then make it that and it works really really well um but it's not a narrative i would have thought of and and yet it like it just you lay it out like this and it's like oh perfect of course that's of course that's what it is yeah yeah and it, yeah, it brings in a lot of really good, um, I don't know, like classic fairy tale isms into all of the fairy tales. Like, I'm not familiar with Tattercoats previously, but just like the idea of the, you know, girl is given these three magical dresses and like goes to this island and meets the prince, and the prince thinks she's like a a boy that works in the kitchen or something and like, or just like this mistaken identity. And then, you know, like, I don't know, just all, I, even though not knowing that story, just like all the little beats, I was like, this feels very authentic to like a classic fairy tale. And I also appreciated that these were very much in the like Grimm's fairy tales tradition too. Like, man, that Cinderella story in the middle was like, that was rough, man. Like, and the stepmother serves her the magic fish. Like, you're just like, what? What is this story? Like, it's horrible. <laughs> it's bleak. And you're right. Like, the reason why, uh, and in the beginning, I said that I, I really liked kind of the quote unquote older feeling version of Sleeping Beauty is because it did get very bleak and dark in places uh there there's something like i don't want to say maturity but perhaps less sugar coating mm. than some modern interpretations tend to have yeah there disney has no role in this production yeah i mean i think I don't know, I can't I can't remember where to attribute this to, but I feel like I've I've heard some discourse on just like the idea that classic fairy tales were almost meant in an instructional form. Like they were kind of to tell your kid that like, yeah, death is real, bad things happen to good people, like the world can be really horrible sometimes, but you just have to sort of make your way through it. 
and that Disney's kind of doing people a disservice by just being like, everything's going to work out fine in the end, no matter what. <laughs> and like, not to <laughs> throw Disney. Sorry, go ahead. Throw them as much shade as you want. I think Disney is doing a lot of disservice to a lot of people. Yeah, I, mean, I don't think they were the first ones to hit on that idea, though. I think if you read Victorian, like stories written in the Victorian era, like, they have the same kind of whitewashing that Disney does. I think there's some kind of connection there, but uh, they took a lot of older stories and like cleaned them up for children because they were not appropriate, quote unquote. Um, so there's definitely a long tradition of that. But yeah, if you go back to the original, well, I mean, we I keep saying original fairy tales, that's not really a thing. There isn't, an, like the nature of fairy tales is that there is no original. Yeah. Um, but the further back you go, the more sort of like, no, this is just a description of what life is like. And like a lot of bad things are going to happen. Get ready. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know in particular, I really liked the subversion of the Little Mermaid at the end because it sort of leans into the Hans Christian Andersen version a little bit in the sense that like she makes this big sacrifice to come to the prince's world and then the prince is a bit just like oh you're quirky but like i'm not actually in love with you and you're gonna be screwed and then she ends up uh like falling in love with the like the dance instructor and uh you know and it kind of becomes this like this like kind of coming out uh kind of kind of queer metaphor that like like is what tian needs to read at the time but just like the uh, or like needs to hear at the time because I think his mom's reading it to him. But like, yeah, just that that subversion of like, and the prince was not necessary, and actually these two women fell in love. I was like, well, that's nice. That's a nice way to like, kind of turn turn that around because like the original Little Mermaid is is pretty, uh, the original version as told was like, or the earlier versions as told is pretty bleak, you know. So yeah, because like uh, the um. <laughs> In the original, the Little Mermaid doesn't get what she needs to stay in the human world, and she just dies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I appreciated uh, a twist on a happy ending for yeah. the Little Mermaid. Yeah, and that was so well done, too. I may have cried. Oh, that's <laughs> so sweet. I'm really, really happy with uh, the way this book ended as well. That, like, it had this, this warm acceptance and this warm kind of sense of family. Uh, going back to like there's there's generalized discourse let's say that a lot of queer narratives uh are centered on tragedy and mm -hmm. uh for this to have so much positivity in it i think and also the fact that it's a very all ages work mm. uh so it it does come into love it does come into crushes but you could give this to a child of any age and it would no no one would find inappropriateness with it, and I think that makes it a very accessible and powerful work. Yes. One thing that I wanted to say that you mentioned, Jeff, that the the twists and the subversions, both narratively and aesthetically, for me, um, made it very very powerful in the book because we spend so much time with these fairy tales. Like if you look mm. at the the color-coded percentages that we spend with the fairy tales versus Tien and his mom. Mm. There's a lot 
of time that we spend in the fairy tales themselves. And yeah. so I'm very grateful that there's such a richness to these stories that it, it isn't like a note by note retelling. My one personal critique of this book is that I found the story with Tien and his mom so compelling that I wish there was more of it <laughs> percentage wise in the book. I really wanted to learn more about Tien and his friends. I really wanted to learn more about Hien and her history with her dad. Like that seemed really compelling, but it's clear that that wasn't really what uh, Chung Lei wanted to write. Like that wasn't the focus that he wanted to have in this book. So mm. it, it is what it is, and it's it is for that focus, and it's a it's a testament to the strength of of Chung Lei's writing that they were able to make those characters so compelling that I was like, ah, more, though. <laughs> I would I would actually even say that that speaks to the strength in the writing because I think it in those sh few sparse pages with Tian and his mom you get a sense of this much bigger world that you want to learn about. And yeah. I think that that it's like, I think like good writing is where you can create, you know, a, a like a, a situation of two characters talking and then you are reading all this other stuff into it. And even though it's two pages long, you like want there to be 10 more pages, you know? And I think, I think that just speaks to the strength of the writing, you know? Definitely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, and I was going to say, like, I, it was like the, the scene where Tian gets kept after class to talk to the, the pastor, uh, because he was dancing with a boy. Ooh. Um, it, I, I thought that was like handled pretty well. If you're like a very uncomfortable situation, like, you know, it doesn't dwell on what's happening, but it also kind of touches on the stresses and strains that that kind of it brings up the stakes of kind of what Tien is, is feeling. And I think that's handled in a way that, you know, I think like it, it, it's upsetting, but I don't think it's like overly, overly upsetting, you know, like, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it accomplishes the, the goal it set out to sets out to there. Uh, I will say I had kind of a visceral reaction to that scene just because like, I know this is a story set in a Catholic school in the 90s, so this is probably what would happen. But uh, school is such a very different place now. Like, that would not happen in the class that I just taught or the school I just taught in this year. Like, if something like that were to happen, there would be, like, high-level meetings about that teacher. <laughs> right. So, Which is like, it's, it's shocking for how... Um, how different things are now and how um like you don't it's easy, like i didn't realize as i was reading this what time period it was set in although because there's a connection to the vietnam war it should be possible to figure out like oh this is not like 2021 but the the way things are drawn it's not like super obvious what the setting is and so when that moment hits it's like Phew! like where did this come from which is, I think, the character's sort of experience at that point, too. Yeah, it's interesting to relate this to something like Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me, where queerness in high school is dealt or is handled very differently. Uh, mm -hmm. And so it is reassuring that some things have changed, but they haven't changed that recently. Oh, yeah, no, this they is all have very... not they have not uniformly changed everywhere. 
Hmm. Also true. Yeah, no, my reaction at that point is based on just having spent nine months in a classroom where mm, several kids came out this year. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's good. It's, I'm glad to hear that there's a lot more freedom and flexibility for, for children to explore themselves more authentically. And uh, Lord knows there's like a lot of damage in our generation where we had to spend so much time figuring ourselves out on our own because we didn't have the space to explore. Yeah, but that doesn't have to do with this book. So <laughs> that's a different topic. <laughs> but, but no, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think um, I, I don't know. I, I also just, I mean, again, getting back to Tien's life, I appreciate just how he's got some really good friends that are like really supportive and like, you know, he has a, a, a crush on a boy that isn't, you know, doesn't feel about him the same way, but like it's, he's also not like repelled by that. Like it's like they're able to yeah. still maintain a positive relationship despite this. Yeah, the crush is welcomed and they they can still be friends after, which I think is Mm. beautiful. Like, thank goodness, because I really like that relationship between, like, Tian and Julian. And because the characters are, it's it's unclear, again, like, what their age are, but they're drawn very youngish-seeming. And so the relationship feels, like, super sweet and, like, so cute. And so it, it would be so sad to see it portrayed in like a heartbreak context which it's not Hmm. which again is like another reason why i feel like this is a really gentle work that can be provide a lot of comfort or a lot of understanding to a child of any age Mm -hmm. yeah it's um i don't know it's just yeah it's very very sweet very wholesome it's a nice uh, it was a nice change of pace from uh, all the the death in uh, Death Note. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally different type of work here. Yeah, my my review is Death Note at eight. <laughs> uh, while we're kind of on this topic, I also want to comment that uh, subverting hands, Christian Anderson in particular, is I think a very good twist because it has been suggested that Hans Christian Anderson wrote. The Little Mermaid about himself, uh, in the sense that he was in love with a man and he wrote love letters to him and was turned down. I did not hear that. Interesting. <laughs> so it's kind of uh, like we can't ask Hans Christian Andersen now, what did you write this story about? But it is at least possible, if not likely, that it, it was always a queer narrative. And this book gives it a different ending. Yeah. Good. Yeah. yeah. It's, and that's um, the beauty of fairy tales. Exactly. That they have this, this flexibility to them. And I think there's there's a lot of that emotion in this book. That There's a lot of affection for fairy tales. And it's interesting because like, often when you think of an affection for history or an affection for something Mm, literary there's often like a rigid compliance that goes along with it and fairy tales know they're they're wonderful because they're malleable because they can be filtered through the lens of different cultures or the lens of different eras or even the lens of different times in your life 
and uh, that is part of their their charm. And this is uh, a really strong love letter, I think, to that as a concept. Yeah, and I I mean I think that there's like yeah there's a real beauty in like the way that the you know you have the first fairy tale that sort of gets told and then the second fairy tale uh gets told and then the aunt kind of corrects the mother and it's like well that's not actually how it ends and it's like that's the way a fairy you can always just put like it's like you you're telling the fairy tale to your child and they're sad that the character dies so you're just like oh but actually the <laughs> sisters traded their hair and then she lived forever you know you can like put those like little twists on it and so then like i i think that that sets it up so well for then the third fairy tale where the mom just like clearly just changes the narrative to give tian the story he needs to hear at that moment you know and um it was this kind of beautiful way of her expressing her like acceptance of her son um and it's i don't i think that's kind of like the the it's like people talk about fairy tales being a bit like, yeah, like, um, like almost like a, like a fever dream or they're like malleable, but it's like, that's kind of the beauty of them is you can sort of bend and twist them to the moments that we need. So if you need like a happy ending, we can, we can give you a happy ending version of this story, but if you need something a little darker, we can tell a darker version of it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, do we want to talk about the art? Because the art is so good. Desperately want to talk about the art. I love the line quality yes. in Trungle's work. I think there's just so much detail in this, in the inks and in the hair and in patterns and uh, uh, I, really love, I really love the line quality. I will say that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, no, this the style is so unique uh, and special. Long, long ago, someone described my drawing style and one of the best compliments I've ever got is kind of like an international style where it wasn't really like North American style. It was like there were some clear Japanese influences, some clear European influences. I feel like this is uh, a much better example of that description where like this is a style that sort of encompasses influences from everywhere. Hmm. I would agree with that. I would agree with that because like you can you can clearly see uh especially when it's illustrating or when they're illustrating something that is you know a very clearly vietnamese thing the the asian influences uh pop out a lot more like you can see it in every little detail but uh, the first the first uh fairy tale especially i think jeffy mentioned that it's like it feels very by the beat, you know, it's like you're given three dresses and the dresses are illustrated in a very ornate, very uh, traditionally Western way. And those details definitely help it feel a lot more international or multi-influence. Uh, the multiple influences are a lot more visible. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't normally get excited about dress designs in a comic, but like this is a work where just like every time there's a woman in a dress, you're like, wow, that dress is even more beautiful than the last dress that was drawn. And I think that's, that's Trunkle's definitely showing his passion for sure. A lot of beautiful dresses in his work and uh, it's exciting to see as a Patreon supporter. It's like, oh, what a beautiful dress. There's also just like uh, bits of like visual language that only exist within this book. Uh, like when you see stars around someone, 
that's sort of like symbolizing love or uh, attraction or something along those lines. And I've never seen stars specifically used as that sort of a, a visual metaphor, but like it was very clear to me like that's what these stars were. Mm. Mm. I hadn't picked up on that. That's good. And we mentioned the color a little earlier on, how there's a limited palette. There's a specific color code for describing the present with Tian and his mom. There's a different color for the past with Tian's mom, uh, Hien and Vin. And there's a different color for the fairy tales. Mm-hmm. And that limited palette to me works really well. Uh, as you mentioned, comics are very good at handling. Now it's a story, now it's a flashback and the color coding really helps so that you don't get lost, you don't get confused. Uh, but also I personally feel like that limited palette color helps the line work really shine. Oh, uh, yeah. There's no sense of competition between the line work, which is very heavily detailed and has a lot of patterns and the colors. The colors really enhance the work and, and make it so beautiful. Yeah. And yeah. it's, yeah, the colors are just so, so well handled. And like this work, I don't think would be as good without the color tone. Like I think black and, it would still look pretty stunning black and white, but I think that the color just gives it something. But I think this is also a good, a good argument for the power of like four color comics. Like I was just having a, a discussion about how DC's been recoloring all their classic mm-hmm. 1980s comics that used to have flat color, and now they're getting Photoshop artists to like airbrush everything. And I think that honestly, I think comics are like way more powerful in this graphic like limited color sensibility and i think i love to see modern comics that just lean into that and go like this panel is red this panel is blue and we're not going to worry about you know airbrushing in like 17 different tones on top of it you know <laughs> I bring i agree with you however i would bring more nuance to it mm. i think it depends on the work mm. so for me i'm a lot more interested in color choice Right. Then I am with color rendering, perhaps. Mm. Like, I don't know if you've right. ever seen examples of colorists who show, uh, try to show off their portfolio by saying like, okay, here's a page of comics. This is how the, the colorist decided to do it. Here's how I would have decided to do it. And just mm. by their color choices, they're communicating something very different right. or they're communicating an enhancement Right. of the theme or what is going on, the mood. Right. Right. Uh, so if there was a limitation at the time, for example, bone uh, right. is, is I think a really interesting example of this where mm. at the time it was published, per, it, it was very intentionally crafted with these limitations in mind. So mm. like there is an argument both ways, like bone is very powerful in black and white, but color wasn't really an option right when it was created and the colors that were applied later on Mm. do change the experience of the work and some could say it enhances it and some could say it's not pure or whatever right right right. (laughs) like it's 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 interesting 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I guess I, I personally have found, like, I think that the bold, these bold colors are expressive, and I feel like sometimes, not always, I mean, yeah, sometimes, especially with, like, classic superhero comics, sometimes someone was on a deadline and they just, like, knocked it together and, like, hey, if we want to use computers to, like, make sure the Hulk is green because we accidentally made him purple in this panel, like, yeah, sure, but um, I do think there are examples of, like, really expressive artistic coloring choices that are being lost because there's this perception that, oh, well, if it wasn't done in Photoshop, it, it has no value. And and I, with, I think with that, that... I agree with you completely. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, keeping on the, the theme of color here, we, even though we've got uh, different sort of settings or parts of the story are in different palettes, there are a few moments where other colors get mixed in and because they're so rare, they're like very powerful. Like there's one scene, I'm looking at page 155, where we're trans, like usually the transitions between the fairy tales and the present day are abrupt. But in this one page in particular, it's a gradual change. And so the colors also gradually change. Mm. Or there are scenes in the um, the Cinderella story where like, Cin what's her name? Tam, Tam gets murdered and like there's other colors added in so we can see the violence of the scene or mm. there's the peaches which are like not within the palette in the first story but they're still peach colored because then they're given a sort of like extra depth to the story mm. yeah so like choices like that are like uh because they're used sparingly they are much more effective yeah which i mean i will now that i'm just flipping back through this uh as far as like kids reading it there is some like there is some like cruelty to animals and some <laughs> violence <laughs> true, true. yeah i think this this is a book that you could give to a specific kid i don't yes. know that i would put it in my classroom because i would wor be worried about the wrong kid reading it and then me hearing about it from their parents <laughs> yeah i mean like I you know i'd say like you know 12 12 and up for sure you're you're good sure there. yeah yeah, I, this would not. I don't think this would be as good in full color, though. Like the. Oh uh, yeah, and, absolutely. And just like the interplay of the panels, like just yeah, like the little, like accents where just specific items pop out, and even just like occasionally you'll have like, it's a red page, but then like a blue panel pops up or a yellow panel pops up, and it just makes that panel have just a little more impact, you know? Like even this. Um, it's like page 123 where, you know, Hien has arrived in Vietnam and is standing on the street and it's a red panel, but then it, it, it she's overlapping with a yellow panel that is like a memory. And it's just sort of, it's very clear that it's it's a memory that's in the background of her mind. Um, and just the way it's, it's presented is, yeah, it's like you couldn't do that if you were doing a full color, but if you're doing this limited palette, you can do fun stuff like that and yeah. so yeah takes full advantage of its medium <laughs> excellent excellent choices very strong use of comics and color and medium and yeah mm. and, and great you know page compositions too yeah i was even going to say like even like balloon tails to be honest like just the way that some of the balloons would like twist balloon tails would kind of twist and turn through the panels like yeah, like every aspect was seemed very like finely crafted and 
don't know. It's, yeah, it's one of those, it, this is one of those works that I read and then I think, like, I really need to up my game. I really got to, like... <laughs> we read a lot of books like that, on trade readers, don't we? <laughs> blessed. Yeah. It's, it's like, you know, goals. Yeah. You're setting the bar. Setting the bar for yourself. It's good. Yeah. Yeah, we've, we've mentioned uh, a few times in the past that we're kind of in a a new golden age or a new renaissance for the graphic novel. And I think this is, I think this came out last year, right? So this is another entry that just kind of cements that case. Uh, it is a really strong work that sets a really high bar for comics as a medium. And thank you, Chong Lei, for, for bringing us such a beautiful work. Yeah. I mean, I think like just for um, first graphic novel out the gate, uh, nominated for an Eisner too. I mean, I think that's pretty, pretty impressive in and of itself. Yeah, I'm excited to see a future Trung Lai Nguyen uh, work. So yes. yeah, for sure. More comics. <laughs> uh, are we are we wrapped for this section? We could. We... Yeah, unless anyone else has anything else they want to bring up. Uh, would you recommend this book? I would 100%. absolutely recommend this book. This book is great. Yeah. Yeah. You should definitely read this book. Very good book. Yeah. This we... actually, I hadn't thought about this as like a, a young reader book, but now that you've brought it up, John, like I do think, you know, I think like someone just starting, like a, a, someone just starting to kind of really get into comics, like this would be a good sort of introductory, like, early comics reader kind of work uh i don't know i would be curious actually to give this to someone who hasn't read a lot of comics and see how they do with it because like the stuff being done in terms of the storytelling is very complex but not necessarily complex in a way that i think would make reading difficult i'm not sure hmm. i think there's a lot of layers to this book and I think the reason, Jeff, that you probably didn't think of it as a young reader book is because it is so rich uh, for adult readers. There's a mm. lot coming into it just foundationally from the beauty of the comic. It is worth reading. There's a lot about identity that you can get from this. And there's a lot about the immigration experience, which uh, as a North American reader, we sadly don't get enough of. So mm. there's so many good reasons to read this book. I think a young reader might not understand every level, but would still enjoy it. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. So yeah, obviously from my perspective, it's stronger. <laughs> <laughs> okay, do we want to do shout outs? Do we yes. still have shout outs? Yes, sure. We do. Yeah. Okay, uh, I'm going to go first then. Uh, I'm Jonathan. Uh, I'm going to shout out Making Friends by Kristen Gudznick. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, but it's um, a really interesting book. It, the premise is simple. It's a, a girl who gets a magic notebook and discovers that if she draws things in the notebook, they become real. And so she makes some friends that way. But then it like takes that premise and like goes interesting places with it. And I thought it was really good. Cool. All right. Um, all right. I'm Jeff Ellis, and uh, 
I'm going to shout out Sapiens, A Graphic History, which is a graphic novel adaptation of a prose book that I've been reading. Um, so it's written by Yuval Noah Harai, and it's illustrated by David Vandermeulen and Daniel Casaneva. I'm probably saying that wrong, but anyways, um, it's, it was like a super intellectual book and now it's been turned into two graphic novels and i'm just really fascinated with this this uh new new iteration <laughs> very cool all right and i'm jam and i am i would like to shout out another queer book that i finished recently another one that came out in the 2019-2020 kind of era it's called bloom by kevin panetta and uh, I would say this is more of a, a teenish kind of book, uh, both in its, its content and also its, uh, its depth, but it's a really, really cute story about uh, two people who work at a bakery and fall in love. And uh, I think it holds together really well as a standalone graphic novel and I really enjoyed reading it. Uh, okay. So that is another episode of The Trade Waiters. The Trade Waiters is presented by Cloudscape Comics. We'd like to thank Sleuth for the music. You can find us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Thanks so much for joining.